back to Slay Away, the podcast where we discuss the inspiration behind your favorite horror films, lore, gore, and every kill in between. I'm your host, E.L. King. We're joined today by content creator, The Grim Reva. In this episode, we're talking about the Gainesville Ripper and the true crimes that inspired Kevin Williamson to write the screenplay for Scream. Wes Craven's masterpiece had it all. Sex, gore, jump scares, all the key ingredients to be a bona fide slasher before subverting everything. He revitalized the slasher genre, combining black comedy with whodunit mystery and slasher genre violence to satirize the cliches and tropes made popular in 80s slasher films, which we both love. Right, Reva? Definitely. Um, Scream was released on December 20th, 1996 and was a box office hit, grossing over... $173 million worldwide, which they totally didn't expect that to happen. Um, I had watched a documentary and they kept saying like, yeah, and then it just kept booming and getting bigger and getting bigger. And I just, I guess they actually had a review that said that Scream was uh, DOA. It was dead on arrival. It was a, it was a pre-release review about the film and they couldn't have been more wrong. (laughs) But before we dive into our review of Scream, let's step into a segment we like to call Creep Me Out, where we explore the true events and lore that inspired the film. On the brink of being evicted, a struggling scriptwriter found himself house-sitting for a friend, where he came across a true crime special while browsing the TV channels. Finding himself creeped out, he called a friend in search of comfort, and they deep-dived into conversations about their favorite scary movies. It was at this moment Kevin Williamson was inspired to write the script for the movie responsible for the resurgence of the slasher genre. When we heard this story being the true crime fanatics that we are, we wanted to know more about this true crime special that Williamson was supposedly watching. I wanted to know who was the real life ghost face, you know, the killer who inspired this horror classic that most of us love. This Creep Me Out segment, it's all about the Gainesville Ripper. It was the week before a new semester, for many a new beginning at the University of Florida. Sonia Larson and Christina Powell had just moved into their Williamsburg Village apartment, where they were found a week later murdered, their bodies stabbed and mutilated, and placed for show with signs of sexual assault. Only a day later did the police also find Crystal Hoyt, murdered in her duplex apartment. A murder that resembled the likes of the Larson and Powell slayings, but this time, her head was severed and placed on a shelf. Speculations ran around the university campuses, the university newspaper claiming the likelihood of a Ted Bundy copycat, or a tribute, so to speak. The story's evidence read, Ted Bundy was born November 24th and executed January 24th at the age of 42. The five Gainesville slayings, which police said may have begun August 24th, have centered in an apartment-laden area around Archer Road, which is also State Road 24. The second murder was on Southwest 24th Avenue. Like many true crime stories, one of the many rumors that came up in several articles is that it coincided with the release of The Exorcist 3. On August 27th, the bodies of roommates Tracy Pauls and Manuel Taboda were found in their apartment, both stabbed several times, Tracy's nude body mutilated and sexually assaulted. 
The police then quickly had to come together to put together a profile for whom they believed was a serial killer. A serial killer the town dubbed as the Gainesville Ripper. The DNA matched the murders together and quickly tied the case with another case back in Louisiana. The Gainesville Ripper had a type, and that was young women who were petite, brown-eyed, and brunettes. But the death of Manuel being a man also created room for speculation that he would go to no end to kill. On August 30th, with many tips, one of their prime suspects, Ed Humphrey, was taken into custody for assaulting his grandmother. Humphrey was an 18-year-old student who lived in the same buildings as Larson and Powell, and also known around town for being a little strange and obsessed with knives. It was said that he had even threatened someone with ripping them open with a knife. That's one of the rumors, so to speak. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he was quickly ruled out when the DNA didn't match. It wasn't until six months later when the police identified Danny Rollings as their prime suspect. In their findings, they found a makeshift campsite close to the university campus, which linked Rollings to the killings. It was said that he stalked each of his victims before killing them, and it was later revealed that he spent time in the victims' apartments, even taking showers, eating their food, basically enjoying his time there. He later confessed to the killings, and he states that he wanted to become a superstar just like Ted Bundy. Rowling was executed by lethal injection on October 25th, 2006. Okay, so for me personally, the Gainesville Ripper story is one that I didn't know about until earlier this year. I've been looking up more information on, um, you know, different crimes that may have inspired horror films because that's something that's always been really fascinating to me. And the Gainesville Ripper is a great one, um, especially because that's what inspired Williamson to write the screenplay and that he went to the desert for three days and wrote Scream, which is just bananas. (laughs) <laughs> I I thought it was really interesting. I have always heard that Scream was obviously inspired by true stories. And through, I think, probably a couple of years ago, I watched something about the Gainesville Ripper and heard about it. But I never did more research to actually see, like, how inspired it was. The thing that struck me when I first heard about the crimes was how similar it was to the crimes of Ted Bundy, specifically while he was in Florida after he had escaped um, custody in Colorado, right? Um, and to find out that the Gainesville Ripper himself was actually inspired and wanted to be like Ted Bundy, that's so scary, right? Yeah, what was crazy about it as well is that this happened a year after Ted Bundy was executed and buried in Gainesville um, because he was at the prison in Gainesville as well. So it just it had so many close ties. I actually didn't know that he that that's where Ted Bundy was executed and where his remains were laid to rest, if you will. But the thing that was really interesting to me that you found out was the the significance to twenty four and uh, like the weird number sort of significance with Ted when Ted Bundy was born and then he was executed and then when the slayings occurred in Gainesville on you know the 24th of august on the t- <laughs> it was so weird it's it's such a weird and we don't know i mean maybe it's a coincidence or maybe that is actually how um the gainesville ripper chose his victims we have no idea outside of 
you know, what he's spoken about and, and what his type was and things like that. But I thought that one of the most gruesome things about it was the way he positioned some of the bodies. And, and we won't get deep into that because it's, it's really scary. And it's the way that he staged his crime scenes. Right. But and I think I think that part was definitely inspiration in Scream, though, if we're going to talk about the relations, because, you know, uh, just like the the opening scene, you know, and how Drew is displayed, you know, I just feel like that that brings a lot of resemblance. We're going to dive into doing a full review of Scream and talking about the film. It is Reva's favorite scary movie. It is my favorite scary movie. What's your favorite scary movie? I'm kidding. This is going to be the theme of the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, let's get right into it. Hello. Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. Uh, I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far do you like scary movies what's the point they're all the same some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door it's insulting there are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie number one you can never have sex hey this me never ever ever under any circumstances say i'll be right back Cause you won't be back. You get another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. He didn't make the rules. The police are always off track. If they watch Palm Night, they save time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. about this is the way that Wes Craven built tension right um for me in the first scene we see Casey Becker played by Drew Barrymore and um this whole like amazing 13 minute sequence plays out and apparently it was um this initial 13 minute sequence that helped sell the film to get like more funding or something like that Reva you might have more information about what that that actually was but I had watched or read something about how um they got more backing with just the opening scene because it's it's such it's so much a movie within a movie and it just makes it even more meta so um essentially what i first found in that first scene is the when a stranger calls aspect of the film and i've actually heard other people reference this as well um this entire 13 minute opening that remains honestly one of the most brilliant openings in a horror film is living rent free in my mind pretty much all the time and it's very reminiscent of when a stranger calls starring carol king 
directed by Fred Walton. And um, that's purely coming just from uh, the calls are coming from inside the house trope. That's very evident there. Yeah, I I definitely agree. It's it's one of the most brilliantly written and actually to to get a better understanding when I like when I was doing research about Williamson is that this was actually the original script was the first 13 minutes and then the rest of it was just more kind of ideas. It wasn't a full script. So this is what they used to pitch the script and then once um they finally like got everything together they got drew barrymore which then they convinced wes craven because they had to go to him a couple times before he actually agreed and it's all to do with this scene and drew barrymore yeah wes craven turned the script down several times because he didn't want to do another slasher film or another horror film because he felt typecast in that but then uh, i had watched something and it had said that he was actually like he went back to the studio and was like, hey, okay, is that still available? I want to do it. Because a kid asked him, hey, how come you don't make any great horror movies anymore? Like, you should make something like that. And I was like, yeah. All about that 10-year-old boy. (laughs) That 10-year-old boy gave us scream. Thank you, 10-year-old boy. Um, But yeah, so yeah, the the first 13 minutes was the initial idea for the film. And I love what it turned into. And that actually, um, Drew Barrymore was initially cast to play Sidney Prescott. But she backed out at the last minute and decided she only wanted to be in the first part of the film as Casey Becker. And um, like she she actually thought it would be more impactful for her to die. She said, well, I'm Drew Barrymore. If I'm playing the main character, everyone's going to assume that I'll live. Yeah, I thought that was absolutely brilliant because it's true, right? If you if you see a big actress, you're automatically assume, well, that actress isn't going to die. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, so uh, we come back to the kitchen. The phone rings, and Casey Becker answers. She flirts until the unknown killer says, I want to know who I'm looking at, uh, but pretends it's a mistake. You know, that's something that obviously happens all the time with people calling and doing crank calls and things like that. If you've seen Scream, you know that Ghostface likes to play games. Uh, Casey hangs up the phone but keeps answering the phone every time that Ghostface calls back. Like, why do you keep picking up the phone? You should have just stopped picking up the phone before we got that far, honestly. (laughs) Uh, Right. (laughs) She's kept on the phone to play a game of horror movie trivia with the threat that her boyfriend, Steve, tied up on the porch and herself will be gutted like a fish if she doesn't play and win the game. So I love horror movie trivia, but hot dang, if I like the the horror movie trivial pursuit that I've got sitting next to me is very difficult. (laughs) But scream questions will definitely win at. Um, (laughs) Casey fucks up and despite apparently having seen Friday the 13th 20 times uh, when asked who was the killer in the original Friday the 13th she answers that it was Jason whoops Steve is dead guts spilled all over the patio we've got our first kill oops (laughs) oh so brilliant I'm sorry that's the wrong answer I'm like oh god (laughs) Casey, uh, <laughs> and then just like insult to injury i've seen that movie 20 times Ooh, speaking speaking of that part too um because in a couple of the documentaries uh that i was watching i had saw that they had mentioned that the 
the guy who does the voice, you, you're better at remembering names than I am, but the guy who does the voice for Ghostface, he was actually like hiding in a whole different room and actually doing the calls and they've never met him or anything. Right, so, he was in the closet like, and in the documentary that I watched, he's actually, you don't get to see his face. It's just his voice. Um, yeah. His pic, if you really want to know what he looks like, go to IMDB and, and look up the cast, his pictures right there. Um, but uh, yeah, they hid him off camera the whole time uh, and he just did voice acting to make it scarier for the actors, which I just think is fantastic. Um, but yeah, jumping back in, <laughs> we uh, play this drawn out game of cat and mouse with Casey needing to guess which door Ghostface is at. And uh, Reva and I have a few theories about this, given that we have two killers to choose from, Stuart Billy. Like, I hope by now what is it, 20 years later that you've seen Scream? If you haven't, spoiler alert, you know, um, you should be going <laughs> into these. But um, Ghostface is actually played by Wes Craven in this sequence in one of two of his cameos in the film. Um, otherwise, it's mostly played by uh, stuntmen. And there are a few of the actors that have donned the costume. Um, but even, uh, but like donning the costume as the actual killer in like any of the kill scenes and things like that. It's usually a stunt person, but it was Wes Craven in this scene. Um, and I think that's fantastic. And I don't know if it's because of the type of rapport that they had, but Casey runs outside still on the phone. <laughs> um, as we see a car coming down the road, the car pulls into the driveway. And as Casey makes a dash for the car, she is stabbed in the chest by Ghostface and falls to the ground. Uh, this is where the scene gets particularly interesting for us uh, because Ghostface also falls to his knees and begins to strangle Casey. Um, and this kind of indicated to me that this was probably a crime of passion and that he's acquainted with Casey in some way. So um, Casey managed to hit her attacker and, like, knock him back. I assume she had to have kicked him uh, in the groin or something to have knocked him back that far. Um, but it gives her time to attempt another escape. So um, the stab wound likely punctured a lung is what I'm thinking, which is why as she heads to the porch to meet her parents, she's unable to speak. Um, she's only just like barely able to whisper, you know, the word mom, causing her parents to continue inside the house as she goes unnoticed, bleeding on the front porch. At this point, Ghostface stabs Casey repeatedly before dragging her across the lawn, hanging her from the tree in the front yard with the rope uh, from the swing and, of course, gutting her, which we see in the shocking end to the opening sequence. Um, and then to the horror of her parents, they can hear Casey's final moments over the landline phone. And... um her mother rushes out the front door to discover uh, Casey's body with several like blood curdling screams. And we get our second kill. Um, but one thing I wanted to say about this was that, you know, Craven really masterfully foreshadowed and built tension in this film, especially in this 13 minute sequence in particular. Prior to what occurred, um, we got several shots over Casey's shoulder of the patio doors um, when she was initially on the phone to kind of foreshadow that scene that occurs in the patio area. Um, and then a shot of the swing swaying in the breeze hanging from the trees outside where Casey's body is discovered by her parents and the popcorn on the stove swelling until it explodes into a fire at the climax of the scene, which is sort of follows the tension build throughout the entire sequence. Yeah, I definitely... There's something about that popcorn. Like, it just sets the whole tone um 
I don't know. I, it just I maybe makes you even more anxious if you're not already anxious. It's like it keeps time with the tension building, which um, is it's perfect. It's honestly perfect. This this 13 minute sequence obviously can't get any more perfect. <laughs> also, there's one thing that I noticed and I only just recently noticed because I feel like just watching it with a more analytical eye, I guess. So when I was like looking at the shots um, that was taken when Casey was on the phone, but when he started talking about Steve, um, her boyfriend, then like those over shots, you can actually see the shadow of Steve, but I've never, ever noticed that before. Cause you're not actually expecting it. So it's like, you're not looking for it and you can actually see the shadow of Steve. And I, I thought that was freaking, um, it was cool to notice in the afterwards, you know? Yeah. I actually still have never noticed that because every time that she's out, you know, in the living room by the patio door, I'm either distracted by the Betty Crocker cookbooks behind the living room which makes no sense or i'm distracted by the ugly stone squirrel on the patio outside the door <laughs> welcome to the 90s <laughs> i'll never seen steve's shadow but i'm sure it's there and that's the great thing with scream it's the kind of film that you can go back to and watch and find something new every single time um and i rewatched it three times in preparation for this <laughs> podcast um and yeah, it's just, uh, that scene's fantastic. And honestly, there are times when I just go and I only watch the first part of the the first sequence in the movie and then I turn it off. <laughs> and I know you, have, you all um, probably hate me for that, but that's fine. So um, later that same night, we find Sydney Prescott played by Nev Campbell in her bedroom using what I assume is uh, Windows DOS, Windows 95 <laughs> to do her homework. Um, her hair is in this girly schoolgirl ponytail uh she's wearing this extremely virginal floral nightgown it's meant to set set the scene that you know that way um but um <laughs> her boyfriend billy loomis played by skeet oldridge climbs through her window and um billy startles sydney causing her to scream obviously you know that brings dear old dad neil prescott um, up the stairs to check on Sydney, and this is where we find out um, he'll be gone for the weekend. Very interesting tidbit information that, that I had found out the other day. Um, that scene was where um, Billy goes through the window was actually a replicated scene from Nightmare on Elm Street. And when Johnny Depp, I forget Johnny Depp's character's name, but when Johnny Depp climbs through Nancy's window. I, I just thought that really interesting. Sorry. You can't remember Johnny Depp, uh, his his character's name, because Glenn <laughs> is actually like taken out of the remake altogether and replaced by a character that <laughs> um, I absolutely hate. <laughs> but um, anyway, that's for another podcast episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I actually but didn't still. didn't. Um, see the reference to nightmare on elm street but that's awesome i i think that's perfect and it makes so much sense because obviously wes craven uh directed nightmare on elm street so um and this was funny because uh, before we even jump into it when i was talking to um reva before and reva sorry i'm not throwing you under the bus here <laughs> oh, oh okay but, so the craft actually came out before scream and I was telling Reva, like, oh, there's Skeet Ulrich, who's also in The Craft with Nev Campbell. And she didn't recognize him. 
No, I didn't. And we love Skeet. Come on, let's just talk about that crush. You know, scream as Skeet from um, the craft, and I was like, well, it's because his hair is longer, right? Um, and I just thought that was so. It was kind of great, and I'm glad that I could make that connection for you. So that is actually the first film that um, Nev. And I, I don't know which order the films were worked on, but what I had heard in the documentary is that Nev and Skeet had worked on the craft together and the craft, seeing her work in the craft is actually part of the reason they, that she was in to like, uh, read for this part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did hear that as well. Um, because it was like a pretty decent success. I think it came out about uh, six months early, like, it was only a couple of months before they started casting out end of 20 er, excuse me, I got 20 end of night 1996. And I think the craft came out early in 1996. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was released. It was a Christmas movie. <laughs> Scream is a Christmas horror. It is. And it feels like, um, well, it's not set. Te- it's technically not because it's not set around that time period, but true. Fair. Weekend. <laughs> Um, I'd love to see what else came out that weekend to be like, hmm, do we go see Scream or this family, family friendly film? Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, the other thing in this film that I like is there's a lot of references to horror movies. There's a ton of references to other horror movies. So you're getting the sense that these, these kids, they understand and they've seen horror movies. They know the tropes, right? And that's a big part of the film. And how they're turning, you know, the tropes onto themselves. And it's like, we recognize that this is a trope, but we're going to do it anyway. Or we recognize that this is a trope, so we're avoiding doing X, Y, and Z. Which, like, that's not something people had seen in a horror film before. Yeah, definitely. Um, That's what was really interesting, is that they would use the tropes, or and they would spin them. You know, it was like... It's like, okay, well, what can we do? Like, it was so intentful to spin all the tropes or, like you said, just not use them at all. Um, well, so Billy tells Sid that he was watching The Exorcist on television. So The Exorcist came out in the 1970s, exact year, I, I want to say. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's 74 or 76. Um, and it got him thinking of her, which is like, okay, like, how does Linda Blair spewing green pea soup mm. all over the place make you think of your girlfriend explaining that all the good stuff was edited out for tv so that's where the reference comes in it's like okay so you're saying that she's vanilla and you're not vanilla <laughs> you know what i mean and if you don't know what i'm talking about look it up two years ago we uh we started off hot and heavy says and um you know, a nice solid R rating on our way to an NC-17. And now things have changed lately. We're just sort of edited for television. And I'm just like, wow, it's such a great line, though, and a fantastic analogy. And holy shit, is he gaslighting the fuck out of her? Right? Um, The two begin. So, she, yeah, she, they start making out, basically. And for the next 60 seconds, um, to a backing track of like an acoustic cover of Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult, which I th- <laughs> I always think is really weird. It's like playing softly in the background. Um, <laughs> and then the the interesting thing here is the song was written by guitarist Donald uh, Ro- Roser. Um, and it's about mortality and 
the story of a love affair that transcends death. And the song um, was actually quoted by Stephen King in his post-apocalyptic dark fantasy novel, The Stand. And did you all see that The Stand is like coming to like it's a television series now that's coming out soon. So check it out. Um, and uh, like it's been embraced as like a horror icon due to the Reaper. And allegedly the song was enjoyed by a convicted murderer named Gary Gilmore. <laughs> I read all about that and I was like, okay, yeah. So maybe <laughs> just putting that little snippet of the song in there makes sense. But I just always, it feels out of place to me personally. <laughs> um, but they quickly stop. Like literally they make out for 60 seconds and then she's like, you got to go. So it's like, I don't really understand why, like why make out at all. But um, they quickly stop and Sydney uh, rushes Billy back out the window, asking him if he'd settle for a PG-13 relationship. And then we get this off camera boob flash um, to which he tells her that she's just a tease, which I think that's interesting because it's like continued gaslighting in a way almost it's like but she's just she she considers it like kind of a flirty conversation and i'm just like there's a lot of problems in this film for me with sydney continuing to date billy (laughs) agreed agreed all down to the last scenes but anyway well yeah (laughs) um but um so we you know Morning comes, we're back at Woodsboro High School, and it's overrun with police and news vans and reporters, including Gail Weathers, uh, played by Courtney Cox, who apparently had to fight for the role because, you know, everyone saw her as Monica from Friends. Um, And the news station that she works for is called Top Story. And um, they're talking about, you know, everybody's there because the news of the murder of Casey Becker and Steve Forrest circulates around the small you know, suburban Northern California town. Um, and then in walks Tatum Riley, played by Rose McGowan, who is Sydney's best friend. She informs Sydney that the gruesome murders and um, about the, the murders and then makes a reference to them being the worst the town had seen since, you know, like, dun, dun, dun. It's Maureen Prescott. But we don't know that yet. We actually don't find out about Sydney's mother's murder until, like, what I want to say, like, 30-plus minutes into the film. Because they allude to it a bunch until the big reveal finally happens on the television before Sydney's attacked. Um, so Sydney's mother, Maureen Prescott, was murdered. We, we just don't know that yet. As the audience, we have no idea. So Sydney is uh, called into the office later by Sheriff Burke, who's played by Joseph Whip. And then uh, we also have Dwight Dewey Riley, played by David Arquette in the principal's office. And then the principal, Principal Hembry, played by Henry Winkler from Happy Days. Um, who was actually uncredited in the film, <laughs> if you could believe it. He doesn't have a oh, credit. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I uh, I looked it up. So I thought that was interesting. So she gets called into the principal's office, and yet again, there's another reference to um, uh, Henry Winkler's character says, the daughter of, uh, and there's like this long pause, and they're all looking at each other, and then Cindy walks in, and they don't say the name, right? And it's like, why do they keep, it's, you, you wouldn't, wouldn't notice before that there's all these weird pauses of like avoiding bringing it up Mm -hmm. um, until you find out about it later but i never really put that together that there was a lot of it was like there was foreshadowing going on but it was just unspoken can we talk about in that scene that very inappropriateness of the principal with sydney (laughs) like like what the ew if you're if you haven't seen this, go back to that scene with the principal and everyone in the principal's office. And he looks at Sydney and he like, cl- like 
this was actually oh my god it's just <laughs> i can't imagine it now i was like i get that it was the 90s but um principal Hembry leans over and he puts his hands around sydney's chin and like start touching her face <laughs> like i think it's supposed to be a consoling thing but i'm like who the fuck what educator like thinks it's okay such a student like that it's so inappropriate yeah that definitely wouldn't happen these days like not at all it should have never happened to begin with but yeah, it's really it, uncomfortable and i don't know if it was improper oh. intentional <laughs> Um, but classes are let out early and, uh, we find the teen cast in the town square at the fountain talking about their interviews with the police specifically focus on what the police asked, like if they knew Casey or if they like to hunt, um, or if they have a fishing boat. <laughs> so, and those things are all things that like actually are a little bit of foreshadowing, right? So, um, this is a great scene, particularly between Billy and Stu Mocker. So, um, Stu Mocker is played by Matthew Lillard. And I think this is probably the second time that we see him, um, who we know are in fact, the ghost face killers as Stu is almost bragging about the murders and that they could have only been committed by a man. Stu also mentioned several details about the murders that as far as we know, aren't public knowledge. <laughs> and we see Stu and Billy engage, um, in like several knowing glances at each other <laughs> as Billy is obviously trying to get Stu to shut the hell up about it. Um, they just keep like, they keep giving each other looks like Stu is saying something that he probably shouldn't say. And Billy keeps looking at him. Shut the fuck up. So, those eyes, like yeah. literally oh, those killer eyes. Playing those killer eyes. Super hardcore in this scene. And um, Sydney asks like, how do you gut someone? And Stu proceeds to explain it to her. <laughs> it's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> what <laughs> we interrupt him and we find out that Stu used to date Casey which Stu dismisses like really quickly she, he says it's like for two seconds and then we found out that Casey dumped Stu for Steve speaking of dating for a quick second here again some more tidbit information and we might not always go on about what's happened on set in, in next episodes but Scream just has so much behind it but my point here is that did you know that Matthew Lillard and Nev Campbell were dating during this movie for like a, a hot minute? Only a hot minute? Like, no. <laughs> right? I just thought it was so random. I just, I, I actually just discovered that last night because I was like reading some articles. I had no idea. So that's actually a good tidbit. And tidbits are great. Like, keep the tidbits coming. But yeah, so it's in this scene that we all that we meet Randy Meeks, who's played by Jamie Kennedy. And um, this is the character that provides us a running commentary on how the behaviors and decisions of both the killer and the victims are following the rules of a horror film. Um, Stu exclaims that he didn't kill anybody, to which Billy quickly replies with a look that says, shut the fuck up, Stu. Nobody said he did. <laughs> so it's like. <laughs> like Stu, you need to like have some he actually does say in the scene have some fucking tact or something like that yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're giving yourself away in a big way so we head back to sydney's house uh for the night and sid takes the bus home from school to her like mini mansion in the hills above woodsboro um and she's alone because her dad's out of town for work and on the phone with tatum she arranges to like sleep over at tatum's house um, so we know that she's not going to be in her house later that night, or she's probably going to get picked up before dark. So, um, a news report is playing on the television where Gail Weathers, um, uh, is, is talking about Woodsboro and these new murders and how they relate to the murder of Sydney 
Scott's mother, Maureen Prescott, who was sexually assaulted and murdered a year prior, and that Cotton Weary is on trial for her murder due to an eyewitness testimony that Sydney actually gave. So um, this is interesting. It kind of brings everything full circle, all those weird, like, us almost finding out about it. It's like, oh, well, it's the worst murder since, well, it was bad, or the daughter of blank stairs right so it's like okay so this big murder happened and that was like the first thing to shock and rock the small town of woodsboro right um and there is some really great foreshadowing in this scene with shots of the front closet and this ominous sound effect that happens when sydney opens the closet um she's putting something away she's walking around her house talking to tatum on the phone and then she opens that front closet door and there's this random sound effect that kind of shouldn't be there and that <laughs> basically tells us that something's happening with that closet later in the scene and of course Ghostface later pops out of the closet to surprise sydney after she hangs up the phone and locks the front door um so ah, there, there's so many interesting things about just that scene in general, but Sydney takes a nap on the couch and is awoken after dark by a call from Tatum, who's running late to pick her up, um, and they hang up, and then the phone rings again. Tatum, just get in the car. Hello, Sydney. Uh, hi, who is this? You tell me. Well, I, I have no idea. Scary night, isn't it? With the murders and all, it's like right out of a horror movie or something. <laughs> Randy, you gave yourself away. Are you calling from work because Tatum's on her way over? Do you like scary movies, Sydney? I like that thing you're doing with your voice, Randy. It's sexy. What's your favorite scary movie? Oh, come on. You know I don't watch that shit. Why not? Too scared? No. No, it's just, what's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. Are you alone in the house? Randy, that's so unoriginal. I'm disappointed in you. Maybe that's because I'm not Randy. So, who are you? The question is, who am I? question is, where am I? So where are you? Your front porch. Why would you be calling from my front porch? That's the original part. Oh, yeah? Well, I call your bluff. So where are you? Right here. Can you see me right now? Ah, okay. What am I doing? Huh? Huh? What am I doing? Hello? 
Nice try, Randy. Tell Tatum to hurry up, okay? Bye now. If you hang up on me, you'll die just like your mother. Do you want to die, Sydney? Your mother sure didn't. This is, like, this part, like, the chase, this is where um, I theorized that it was definitely Billy. And I know that we were having this conversation when we watched the movie together. Um, because when she get like, when she gets knocked down during this chase scene, he had so much ample time to like kill her. And, you know, in other, in other parts of the movie, like he, whomever is the killer wouldn't usually like wait to go for the stab. And in this particular scene like you know the knife goes down her neck and like in between her breasts and then he goes to stab her and I just thought it was like really really sexual and so to me this is why I theorize it was Billy but there's obviously like um later on where you know it it doesn't seem like it could be him because of how fast things happen but yeah it also establishes that there's like this personal connection between the killer and Sydney right and um, I have to agree with you. But what I found out is that all the mannerisms, all of Ghostface's mannerisms were actually created by the stunt person. It was just something that he did. Right. And I, I just thought that was so good. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I did a great job. there's a lot of things with like, you know, the way he would use his costume finger to like wipe a knife clean and, and, and different things like that, that were um, created by that stunt person. But um, Sydney dials 911 from her bedroom computer, which I don't know if anyone's done ever. And uh, through the window jumps boyfriend Billy Loomis very suspiciously. Uh, Billy is arrested um, because obviously a cell phone drops out of his pocket. And Sydney's like, oh my God, you have a cell phone. This is the 90s. How <laughs> can you even? Um, but uh, Tatum shows up to pick up Sid, and Dewey provides the sheriff with all the evidence at the house as Gail Weathers shows up in her news van to get the scoop on the story. So um, what they find outside is basically um, the ghost face mask. And I think that that's it. He just says he found the mask in the bushes. I actually love when Sydney runs back down the stairs and uh, she opens the door and she screams because like Dewey's there, like just holding the mask. Um, And some other things about this scene that were great is that um, there's other foreshadowing where Sydney's like, yeah, it's insulting. Basically, you know, there's always some big breasted woman that's getting chased up the stairs instead of running out the front door and that it's insulting and stuff like that. And then, um, she locks herself in and does just that. Right. But like, it wasn't an intentional thing. She doesn't lock herself in until she goes out the front door and then assesses that the situation is safe. Right. So, uh, yeah, gotta love those, all the tropes. So, uh, we head to the Woodsboro police station where Dewey tries to reach, uh, Sydney's father, but the police are unable to locate him. Um, and then Billy with his dad is interrogated by the sheriff and held overnight while the police obtain his cell phone records, which like, I don't even know how they did that back in the nineties, to be honest, but, um, I'm sure it was possible. <laughs> I just have no idea. Um, Gail Weather shows up to report the story and finds Sydney as she exits the police station to ask questions about the attack. We absolutely love this scene. We find out that Gail was writing a book on Maureen Prescott's murder. Um, and then Sid punches Gail in the face, <laughs> which is like really really great we love it but uh sydney stays the night at tatum and dewey's house but um while there gets a phone call from ghostface saying she's once again fingered the wrong guy implying that her eyewitness statement placing cotton weary at the scene of her mother's murder was indeed false um 
Mrs. Riley in this scene, like Mrs. Riley is barely in the film, but Mrs. Riley in the scene is actually played by Frances Lee McCain, who was well known for her roles in Back to the Future, Gremlins, and Footloose. So her cameo is really small, but uh, she's a great actress in her own right. So I just like, I recognized her and I wanted everybody to know about it. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Riley grabs Dewey, who rushes out as Sid hangs up the phone with his gun in uh, this like really comedic moment where he like rushes out with his gun because Sid screams while she's on the phone. And then it's like, everything's fine. Like unpopular opinion. I am not a fan of Dewey. <laughs> I think I've told you this before, but I, I know it's a very unpopular opinion, <laughs> but I just feel like the character is just like, I don't know, a little bit too much on the co comedic side, I guess. And we all know I'm a lover of the dark and eerie. Like, he's meant to be the comedic relief in the film. And um, they even said that in some of the documentaries that I watched. But um, the character initially was supposed to be, like, this big buff dude. But the delivery from David Arquette, I think, really made the character what it is. And I kind of love the dopey character of Dewey. Um because he's just like to me he's super likable in that sense and he's very much that small town sheriff's deputy a little bit bumbling um you know just kind of he's 25 but just starting to figure his life out you know but we find out the next morning that uh billy has been released from jail and that his cell phone records were clean so in the background the television news recounts the murder of maureen prescott again and sydney's attack and everything you know as we kind of come to the next day in the the dewey household um or excuse me not the dewey household the riley household um but dewey drops tatum and sydney off back at the high school and sid is accosted by yet another news reporter exit as she like exits uh dewey's car and it's another cameo by none other than linda blair who plays reagan mcneil the little girl possessed by a demon in the exorcist and it was 1973 i was close i like i have the worst memory with like names and dates of releases well, like, i can tell you that it came out in the 70s that's you know that's good enough fair so, yeah. <laughs> so um at the news van sid approaches gail weathers outside the school to talk off the record and they discuss the court case for her mother's murder cotton weary in gail's book and gail believes that cotton is innocent and that sydney uh, falsely identified him at the scene of the crime uh, we discover that Cotton was having a relationship with Maureen, but <clears throat> maintains his innocence in her death. Gail um, realizes the fact that she may have an exclusive on how all the murders are connected. I think that at this point, like also Sydney, because of that call um, from the second, like not the second scene, but the scene inside the house, like in the chase scene, like on that call, says you're going to die just like your mother. And I think that's when Sydney actually probably starts to believe that, you know what, it might have not been Cotton. And she's starting to kind of be more open-minded to what happened to her mother. Yeah, I think the only reason she even approached Gail is get, that she's doubting herself in her own eyewitness testimony because all she really saw was Cotton Weary's jacket, someone wearing his jacket. She didn't see his face or anything like that, just the back of a person. So jumping back in at their lockers, Stu references uh, Candyman from 1992, and someone runs down the hallway in a ghost face costume playing a practical joke. Sid runs down the hallway and bumps into Billy, and they have a heated exchange or a confrontation about the relationship and her accusation of him. This conversation really sucks, and Billy's an asshole. 
<laughs> more gaslighting for you. <laughs> you know, we've been dating for X, Y, Z. And like, obviously her mother died throughout the course of their relationship. And it's like, it's been a year since my mother died. Like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> like, It's like, oh, sorry, I'm dealing yeah. with my mom's death and that you like, we're not having sex right now. Um, but he compares it like he compares it to his mother leaving and abandoning him. And I was just like, yeah, that's different than your mother being taken away from you. Just like he's so insensitive. Like it's this point in time where I'm like so mad at Sydney for getting back together with him later in the film. <laughs> Same. It's like have some self-respect, Sydney. Yeah. Damn. <sighs> so uh, in the principal's office, we find uh, Principal Hembry reprimanding the goons running through the halls in the ghost face costume. Lots of slashing and cutting sound effects uh, happening in this scene as he wields a pair of giant scissors to make his point about their behavior before expelling both of them. But the whole thing with the scissors was super weird because he's just like, you know, he's like wielding it all around and having some fun and stuff. And I was just like, but the sound effects are like extremely noticeable where. You can tell that they got added in in post. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that this was a red herring, though, for sure, because they wanted you to believe for a second that it was the principal. Because I remember, I still remember the first time I watched it that I swore it was the principal. Yeah, I never thought it was the point. principal, but I, I thought that they did give you, it did distract from what was actually going on, right? So exactly, totally red herring, you're so right. Um, but, uh, then in the bathroom, Sydney experiences some teen turmoil and rumors being discussed about her by two unknown cheerleaders. Sid hides in a bathroom stall to avoid being seen. After exiting the stall, Sydney is terrified by an unknown assailant in black leather boots, jeans, and what appears to be a ghost face costume whispering her name and then attacks her. So we confirm that like, okay, someone in the costume attacks her in the bathroom, but she manages to flee the bathroom in time before anything happens. And then all of a sudden it's the end of school and we get the curfew announcement and Gail and Dewey are flirting outside the school as Gail uh, fishes for information. But then we meet Stu, Sydney and Tatum outside as Stu announces that he's got the brilliant idea to have a party at his house that night. <laughs> yes. A party during curfew. Hmm. But anyways, so this is a scene that actually was uh, this next scene was added in afterward in the original script. The principal does not die. It was actually the producers that requested that this death be added. Well, that's always good. <laughs> Oddly enough, <laughs> I only say that for horror purposes, friends. <laughs> yeah. So for me, as I've said, in the most confusing and nonsensical or random death scene in the film. We find Principal Hembry being toyed with in his office by someone knocking repeatedly at the door. And here is where we get another great cameo from Wes Craven playing the janitor dressed as Freddy Krueger in the hallway. <laughs> in, <laughs> which um, to his fantastic slasher from 1984, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and I just I like I love that. I'm like, OK, hold up. Like, is it Halloween? Like, why is he dressed as Freddy Krueger in the first place? But um, it's perfect. And I remember I had said, like, hey, is that Wes Craven when we were watching it together? And, and I confirmed that it was. So I felt proud of myself. What was cool about that, too, is that that 
part before the whole like finding out about Ghostface, but in an interview, he said that that was his first ever cameo that he used to think it was so corny when people would do that. And everybody was like, come on, you have to do it. So they really, really just convinced him to do it. And I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, so Hembry is attacked by Ghostface and killed in his office where we get to me, one of the most iconic scenes from the film, which is a close up of like Hembry's eye. And then you see the reflection of Ghostface and the mask in his eye, um, his iris specifically. And of course, that's our third kill in, in the movie. It, it's a really, really cool shot. And I think there are some movie posters that it was used in or some publicity. Um, but yeah, it's a super cool shot. And then um, we make it over to Tatum's house, which I thought this is great. It was a great transition from the principal's death to the scene because immediately we cut to uh the song schools out by alice cooper playing from tatum's window <laughs> as he and Sydney discuss whether gail's theory about cotton's innocence is true and the rumors about her mother on the porch but i love that because like the principal dies and then schools out and he's like schools out for summers playing and i'm just like wow <laughs> It's like it's a great added and I feel like that was intentional. Um I haven't found anything to to confirm my my thoughts but um I thought it was a great transition from one scene to the next especially with that scene being added in after the fact. Um but Sydney says that if she was wrong about Cotton then the killer is still out there and Tatum tells her not to go there because she's starting to sound like some West Carpenter flick or something. <laughs> And we love Tatum mashing Wes Craven and John Carpenter together. <laughs> she talks about horror films, indicating that she obviously doesn't know anything about the genre. Um, but uh, the girls go inside and we see yet another ghost face stalking them from the bushes outside. And it's like a really quick shot. So if you're not paying attention, you might miss it. So uh, then uh, it's video store time. Yeah. So uh, Frankenstein from 1931 is playing on the screen in the video store as we get our first big monologue from Randy, who has several hard hitting theories about their current situation following the plot and the rules of a horror film. Um, Scream is literally littered with red herrings, as Reva already called out. Um, if you're not familiar, a red herring is something that is used to divert attention from the truth. So in literature or cinema, a red herring is supposed to distract and mislead audiences um, that there's a surprising twist that audiences didn't see coming. So um, and that's perfect. And it actually happens in the end of the film um, when we find out who the killers plural are. Um, there's a heated exchange between uh, Billy, Stu and Randy before Billy stalks off, because like at this point, he's like very grumpy pants about being accused and assumed to be a killer. <laughs> so um, because everyone's still talking about it, Randy still thinks it's true. Stu obviously is like, no way, man, that's my best friend. He's not a killer. Um, and just this scene and some of the mannerisms that Matthew Lillard brings to the character of Stu are just so funny. They are. His facial expressions are everything. I mean, Matthew Lillard was an amazing casting decision. Definitely. Um, and it's, I don't know how well known all the actors were at the time. Like, obviously we know that Nev Campbell had been in the craft and that she was on a successful television show at the time with party of five. And like, um, Courtney Cox being on Friends and things like that. I don't know what other things that like Jamie Kennedy, uh, Jamie Kennedy was actually fairly unknown at the time, um, but I don't know what other things like Rose McGowan and Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich had been in at the time, but we knew that they were fantastic actors. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, Matthew, uh, Matthew accidentally got the part because I don't know who he was dating before the movie. Cause you know, I mentioned up there that him and Nev, um, dated for a bit, but he was, he was actually accompanying his girlfriend to another reading in the same building and they saw him and they were like, Hey, get in here, come do this screen test. And, uh, yeah, he just random got the part. I think he was only one movie before I, I'm, oh my God, I can't believe I'm forgetting the movie. Cause I literally just, um, just research this but yeah he was only one movie and it was a small part yeah i mean they were fresh-faced actors right like in this you know i think scream really made a lot of careers so um and we love that for them so <laughs> uh we get a short like curfew montage scene as the town closes down for curfew and um we find sydney dewey and tatum discussing how weird it is and sydney actually mentions uh a fantastic film called and she says it's like the town that dreaded sundown which is a film from 1976 and it's actually a true crime film where a hooded madman stalks the lover's lanes of texarkana um and it's a fact-based account of a 1946 killing spree. So um, it's 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 funny. I love that that's referenced because Scream is very much sort of replicating that sort of scenario in a way. Yeah, I saw you tweet about the movie too. And it's funny because I didn't actually first get that you were probably inspired to tweet that by this movie until I rewatched oh, it was, Yeah, while I was watching Scream, I'm like, you know, I should really watch... The Town the Dreaded Sundown again. And there's actually two versions of the film. So there's a remake. Um, and I thought the remake was fine. It's not bad if you go and watch The Town the Dreaded Sundown. Make sure you watch both of them, both the 1976 version and the version that came out in like the 2000s at some point. But um, it's a it's based on true crime, which we both love, obviously. So, of course, I had to watch it. <laughs> well, it's on my watch list now because I've never watched it. So, yeah, hey. check it out for sure. Thank you. Thank you, Scream. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, okay, so Dewey stops at the police station while Tatum and Sydney go to the market to stock up on supplies for the party. Uh, the girls talk about Sydney's intimacy issues, and Sydney defends Billy's argument that he wants his girlfriend back, along with his insensitivity about her mother's death. And I'm just like, are you, this is classic, like, uh, <laughs> Some classic, like, abusive relationship gaslighting shit where your friend is telling you, hey, this is what I'm observing, and you're just, like, explaining it away, right? Um, and then we see once again that someone dressed as Ghostface is stalking the girls through the supermarket and the reflection of the cold cases, and I'm kind of like, how the fuck is somebody walking around the supermarket in that outfit and nobody notices? <laughs> yeah, I thought that scene was actually, like, really, really, really weird because it was, like everybody's looking for someone who is dressed as Ghostface, right? So it's like, you know, I'm in the middle of supermarket where there's going to be probably a hundred other people, but maybe, I don't know, maybe there just wasn't a hundred other people. Like, I Yeah, would think. my theory about the, those, and this only happens twice. It happens at uh, Tatum's house, like I said, outside in the bushes, and then it happens at the supermarket. So my theory is that this is actually just other people in town trying to play a prank and being weird in the running around in the costume. Cause I honestly don't think that that's Stu or Billy. Cause that gets you caught. So yeah. it's just, it's, it's like added in there for whatever reason, or it's added in there sort of as a red herring, but um, like it, it's not the killer. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's people playing. Yeah, right. You got to give them some yeah. credit. Like, I mean, Billy and stupid. Stu at least 
Yeah, I mean, they do stupid oh, for things, sure. but they're not like stupid enough. Like they really don't want to get caught. Like they're they plan this out to mm-hmm. a team. I mean, yeah, and it's a plan like a year in the making, as we we find out, right? So. Um, back at the police station, Dewey and the sheriff discuss the theory that Sydney's father is the killer as Dewey licks a strawberry ice cream cone, which I kind of love. It's like, oh, just, you know, we're, we're stuck in that fact that he is not to be taken very seriously. And there's lots of things in the film that try to frame his character that way from the toys to the ice cream cone and all that good stuff. But the uh, phone records indicate that the calls were listed to Sydney's father's phone and that the anniversary of Maureen Prescott's you know, murder probably set him off or something like that. Um, and the, the her murder anniversary is actually the following day. So it's going to be the next day from when the scene is taking place. But the police are now turning their attention fully to Neil Prescott for questioning. So it's time for the house party. <laughs> it's time. So Gail Weathers follows a group of kids to Stu's house where the party is already raging and Dewey drops off Tatum and Sydney at the party and the girls run inside to find everyone drinking and watching movies. I just kind of love that like he's dropping them off at a party that is probably going to go past curfew. And I don't know if it's just like, well, I'm here. So it's totally fine that these kids are probably breaking curfew. Yeah. Well, I think like, well, like what you theorized before is that it was still before curfew and a lot of kids were That's leaving. That's the only explanation so, I could come up with is that it's fall and um, it's daylight savings time or something like that. And it gets dark early. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I could come up with. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, so it's dark, but it's not curfew time yet. Because I think curfew is at like 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. Um, I'm pretty sure the principal actually says the specific time over the intercom, but I didn't jot it down. So. Well, it was weird, though, because they already showed scenes at this point of like a coffee shop and like shop shutting down and turning their sign closed for curfew. So that part, I think, yeah, that it doesn't line up exactly. But I think we get the point that they were trying. Yeah, to get I guess it was anyway. just me trying to figure out, like, wait a minute, is it curfew yet or is it not curfew yet? Um and then me kind of trying to figure out like, okay, well, Dewey, you're an officer of the law and these kids are breaking curfew. And it goes even further because then Dewey spots Gail's news van as it pulls up and he stops to talk to her and decides to go into the party with her, um, at which time Gail grabs a hidden camera to set up inside the party. But it's like, okay, and then now you're going into the party where people are... <laughs> kids are like drinking <laughs> and i think he actually says yeah. to a kid like are you uh are you of age and he like takes the beer and then hands it back to them and is like i'm just kidding and i'm like this is just the kind of small town where it's like kids drink underage and i'm not gonna bust you it's no big deal um and that's just i found it really funny yeah it, it was definitely funny but didn't um dewey in another scene ask gail to come to this party or am i just imagining no, he that? didn't ask her to come to the party he, he he just happened upon her as she she he i think she found out about the party inadvertently maybe from him, him but mm-hmm. um yeah or she overheard the kids or just like she's following kids around i don't know exactly how she found out about the party Hey, it's Gail Weathers. <laughs> she knows everything. She's an everything. investigative reporter. She means business. So, <laughs> um, Randy uh, has brought a collection of horror films starring Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, and the partygoers are voting on which movie to watch. Sid asks why Jamie Lee Curtis is in all the movies, to which Randy replies, she's the scream queen. So, um, and we all know this, and we all love Jamie Lee Curtis. So, um, 
Stu asks Tatum to grab him another beer as he runs to the door and lets Dewey and Gail inside the party. Um, and then Stu disappears for a while. So um, he disappears, but hold on. Like, I get you're all theorizing right now, but just hold on a minute. So um, people at the party fawn over Gail while Sydney checks with Dewey to find out if they found her father yet. Um, and Gail ha- hides the camera under the television set. So this was interesting because like they haven't told Sydney their theory about her father. She's actually just checking on if they found him yet because they were still looking him for him before when Billy was arrested um, at the police station. They still hadn't located him yet, right? Um, they found this information that the calls have been coming from his cell phone, but like Sid doesn't know that they're looking at her dad as a suspect at this point. Mm-hmm. So um, then we head to the garage. <laughs> Uh, Reva's favorite scene in the movie. So uh, we head to the garage mm-hmm. and Tatum goes uh, to the garage to grab a few beers and is attacked by Ghostface. This is actually the scene in which Tatum creates the name Ghostface. This is the first time that the killer is ever referenced as Ghostface and forevermore becomes the Ghostface killer. Uh, it, like this is how it was, uh, how it came to be. So it's never spoken in the film at any other time. Yeah, so the reason that this is one of my favorite death scenes is because as tropey as it is, you know, the blonde haired girl um, who has the bigger boobs is out there. But I think it was just the way that she had so much attitude and the way that they set everything up. And they they also like reminded us that Tatum was is like a really strong character. I think it just kind of showed... It, it was kind of put there to show how scary Ghostface really was with his game playing and why she didn't get out of it. And then I, there's just something visually aesthetic. Yes, I said visually aesthetic in a horror f- film again. But, you know, where going through the the cat door was just like... That door is, that door is know, for was the brilliant. dog that I, I'm not positive they actually own, <laughs> to be honest. Um, it's a doggy door. Um, I don't a cat door. <laughs> well, the cat a cat goes through Does it. Cat go That's through why it? I said the cat door. Cat? Okay, yeah, well, they foreshadow. They foreshadow with a cat. It's a cat that goes through the door, and I never noticed. Like I was like, wait a minute, isn't it a dog door? Is it really for their cat? What the yeah. fuck? <laughs> <laughs> that's what's that's what scares her at first because she goes in there and you know the lights turn out and then the um the cat goes like running past her which also makes me believe that Ghostface was already in there somewhere i don't know I don't, where it's a small yeah. garage but um it's a very uh, small garage no for idea. that big mcmansion uh of a farmhouse but um so tatum is killed in perhaps one of the more violent and gruesome ways by the garage door as she tries to escape through the cat door as you called out or just you know the pet door whatever but we get our fourth kill and then the body is left hanging like that in the garage for anybody to find and ghostface retreats kind of comically back into the party uh through the inner garage door but what's interesting to me is i'm like you just left it there so at any point during the rest of the film somebody could have found it and nobody did <laughs> like until sydney <laughs> later on so yeah and <laughs> what what was also one thing like a fact about this scene is that this was one of the scenes that they really had to edit 
because it was like too gruesome, it was giving it an NC-17 rating. And it's one of the ones because like they had a scene where it's like bulging eyes and dripping blood. And I guess moving blood is the difference between an R rating and yes. NC-17 mm-hmm. rating. The, the blood dripping, which is why um, in a later scene, I always get confused by the fact that I can hear blood dripping, but I don't see it. Um, and it's actually the the scene where mm. Billy stabs Stu, which I know they edited a lot. And what's interesting about this scene is there's no blood at all. It's completely gone. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And she I, I know that they had to nail her to the door because she kept falling. Yeah, so out. To, to, uh, <laughs> Rose McGowan was actually so small that she could easily fit through that door. And yeah, so like they could she um we we don't know what like Essentially, the idea is that her boobs were holding her through the other side, Um, which, (laughs) hey, as women, we know that that happens with clothing and things like that all the time. So it's not an impossibility for me. I was like, oh, shit, that could totally happen to me. I would never fit through a doggy door. Um, But uh, we go back to the party after this and a bunch of people start to leave the party for curfew as Sydney searches for Tatum to leave as well. So it sounds like that's the moment when people are like leaving. Like I said, for curfew, that's my theory. But um, through the front door walks Billy and uh, they decide to go up to Stu's parents' room to talk um, at Stu's suggestion to Randy's dismay as he asks what Leatherface is doing here. So we have another uh, reference to a great horror film, Texas Chainsaw (laughs) Massacre, also from the 70s. Um, And then Randy says that he's going to go check on them, which I'm like, that was weird. And Randy never does go and check on Sydney and Billy, but that is a red herring meant to throw us off and make us think that Randy is the killer. Mm, I know. I, it's funny. I didn't think of it as a red yeah, herring. Yeah, if you actually. really are listening, I just thought it was it, a really yeah, it's strange. strange. But if you're really listening to the dialogue, they've actually set up throughout the film to make you think that Randy is the killer. They do it repeatedly because he is the meant to be the horror fanatic and he works at the video store and he's the one that's giving you all the commentary about the rules of a horror film, right? What's funny in that, because in that like same conversation, Sydney mentioned something about don't let, or no, some was it Stu or Sydney? Don't let Tatum see you here. She'll have your head or something. It was I don't know the exact quote. I think it was Stu. So it's she funny. Uh, oh no, it's actually Sydney that says don't let Tatum uh, see you here. She'll have your head. It's Sydney that says it. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's funny, it's just in that same space, you know, the same space of time, it was like, ooh, wait, was that Billy? Wait, no. Yeah, and the the (laughs) whole thing with Randy going to check on them, it's meant to lead us to believe that he's the killer after Billy's been attacked in the bedroom later because he's gone to check on them, right? Um, Yeah. And it's just meant to misdirect us as an audience. But back at the news van, Gail returns to the van with Kenny, uh, the cameraman. Um, and finds that uh, the hidden camera has a 30 second delay, which 30 seconds is like a long time. <laughs> if you're anyone who's ever created content anywhere, you know that 30 seconds is forever. So um, in Stu's parents' room, and I hate this because I don't like that Sydney takes Billy back, uh, Billy apologizes to Sydney and she expresses that she's scared. She'll turn into the bad seed, another movie reference, the bad seed from 1956. Go watch it. Um, 
And Billy compares her feelings to Clarice in Silence of the Lambs, which came out in 1991. So telling her that life is all one great movie and you can't pick your genre. And then they kiss and decide to have sex. So um, with Sydney long, no longer a virgin, all bets are off of surviving this horror movie that they just happen to be in. And, you know, as Billy has referenced, their genre is horror. <laughs> so um, I think that's I, I, I do love those lines from the scene. Um, and it, it continues. There's a lot of heavy petting going on that we cut back and forth to. Um, so in the living room, this is where we get the rules from Randy. So the party goers watch Halloween together. Stu, Billy, and Randy are all accounted for at this point in the film. And Randy explains the rules you must follow in order to survive a horror film as Halloween from 1978 plays in the background. That's why she always outsmarted the killer in the big chase scene at the end. Only virgins can do that. Don't you know the rules? What rules? You don't... Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Uh, have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no-no! Big no-no! I'm a dead man. Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. So Stu leaves the room, and uh, we'll cut back to the news van with Gail and Kenny. Basically, um, we get to this point. Dewey knocks at the van door and tells Gail that an abandoned car was found down the road. So the two go to investigate together, um, to which I think Gail says to Kenny, um, be right back. So it comes up again, <laughs> right? Um, they're breaking oh, all God. the rules. Yes, yeah, true. Um, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> more people leave the party asking Sue, hey, what happened to Tatum? To which he replies, she's probably got gotten pissed at him and has bailed and left the party um and that's the only time we reference like hey like the second time where's tatum like where where is she um i don't know where this garage is maybe it's in the back of the house because nobody has seen tatum's body um but randy essentially like then narrates this ongoing sexual encounter happening between billy and sydney upstairs as everyone continues to watch halloween and parts of the film mirror what's happening in scream the film which is like so meta um but the house phone rings and randy picks it up and he finds out that principal himbry uh is dead and relays this information to the rest of the party apparently himbry was found gutted and hung from the goalposts on the football field similar to casey becker and the party goers leave for the school to see what's happening and randy stays behind of course to keep watching halloween because any real horror fan would finish the film <laughs> <laughs> another great display that you know ghost face though the gutted in the football field yeah. um and gail and dewey keep flirting on the road as they're like walking to find this car um they almost get run over by the drunken party goers that are headed for the school and then they jump into the bushes to avoid getting hit before they have a quick passionate kiss and find neil prescott's car hidden in the bushes 
which like I never really noticed that before. Really, any references about Sydney's dad as I'm watching the film every time, I just kind of cut out of my mind. <laughs> I don't know why, but it happens every time. I kind of it's the those are the details as an audience member that I never really pay attention to. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Cause it's just like it's more so the small talk and like I guess I guess like when you're watching those parts I think are meant for you to kind of miss. Yeah, but and know. it's funny Maybe because like that me. is the intention of Billy and Stu, right? To like misdirect us and frame Sydney's father, but like it's just something that I think I had to watch several times before I even picked up on it because those references I kept forgetting. So it's interesting. I don't know why it happens, but it does. But Sydney and Billy post coitus <laughs> get a suspicious call. Um, but uh, can I just make a quick mention of Sydney like brushing her hair with some random hairbrush laying on Stu's parents' nightstand? Because like I don't know who does that, but it's weird. <laughs> I don't even want to use my sister's like, I don't, hairbrush. Like, why would you? I mean, anybody else? Lice is a thing, no matter who you are. So I just am like, I don't use other people's hairbrushes. Okay. So, um, yeah, the the hairbrush thing was weird to me, but apparently there is a bit of a um, like foreshadowing set up with the whole cut to the nightstand. I still can't quite figure it out, but it's there. Um, so Sydney asked Billy who he called from the police station for his one phone call. And this totally upsets him that she may still be suspicious of him after they literally just had sex. Um so Sydney explains that she doesn't think he's the killer, but states that if it were him using his one phone call to call her from the police station at Tatum's house would have been a clever way to throw her off track. Just backing up for two seconds. When you were talking about the nightstand, though, it does show the phone and doesn't who downstairs gets a phone call later on. Was it Randy? Um. Well, Randy got the phone call just beforehand already so i don't i don't okay. know i think that her looking at the phone and it, i love that it's a red phone i feel like there's some significance in that but um i think that that is maybe another red herring <laughs> of um her <laughs> yeah. try, talking about how she may have been meant to be thrown off track it's literally explaining a red herring to us in the form of a red herring <laughs> Oh my god! It's it's yeah, so clever. Wes Craven would totally do that. So, um, so uh, to which Billy, you know, looking very serious, asks, "What do I got to do to prove to you I'm not a killer?" Um, and then boom, he gets uh stat stabbed by Ghostface. That's how you prove that you're not a killer. <laughs> so <laughs> what a perfect setup. <laughs> In stocks Ghostface stabbing Billy, and a chase sequence ensues with Sydney climbing out a window onto the roof. And falling down from the roof onto a fishing boat, this is significant, outside the garage where she finds Tatum's dead body hanging from the garage door. Finally, someone's seen Tatum. I think this is like the garage is off a side road or something that nobody drives down. But um, <laughs> the, the fishing boat thing is significant because if you were paying attention at the beginning of the film, they ask about, you know, people who hunt and fish and know how to gut fish for example. Um, and there is a yep. this fishing boat. Um, so this should be an indication to the audience that maybe, just maybe, Stu is the killer. Um, but I think when I first watched this, I still had no fucking idea until it was revealed at the end. So, um, but there's lots of clues set up throughout the film to kind of, like, tell us this. So we know, for me personally, 
we know that this is Stu chasing Sydney, which is perfect because um, he'd have intimate knowledge of the house, right? So, um, but then I talked to Reva later and I was like, hey, this is this is kind of what I think in terms of who's killing who, right? So um, I noted that uh, I think you can tell who Billy kills and who Stu kills based on how the victims are killed. So Billy doesn't put a lot of showmanship into um killing anybody like like Stu okay so um Billy doesn't put a lot of showmanship into his kills but um and this kind of confirms for me that Casey and Steve and Hembry were all killed by Stu because of the the gutting and the the basically scene that was laid out for people to find the bodies um where Tatum was killed mm. by Billy before arriving to the party, I think, because there's not a lot of showmanship in that. It was a matter, the, the death and the way she was killed was a matter of convenience. And he didn't take the yeah. time to set up the body in, in a certain type of way. Well, this goes on to like, it kind of matches the theory that um, I want to talk about a little bit in a little bit as well, is where um, I feel that Billy is a sociopath, so he just kind of wants to blend in where I believe that Stu is a psychopath. So he wants everything to be noticed. He wants to go down like in history. Yeah. You know, lots of um, attention seeking. Like, I know he doesn't want to get caught, but yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, I have to agree. And um, so that is how I've determined who's killing who just based on the showmanship and the time taken with with each kill so um randy continues to watch halloween in the living room where we see a ghost face creep up behind him um and we get this very funny like meta moment as randy is yelling at laurie strode played by jamie lee curtis in the film halloween to look behind her in the film and of course this randy is played by jamie kennedy <laughs> and he keeps saying you know he keeps yelling Jamie, Jamie, ja look behind you, Jamie, and like Ghostface is behind him. He never looks behind himself. So, um, seems brilliant. It's such a great moment. Brilliant. Um, but uh, Sydney screams from outside and runs to the news van where Kenny has fallen asleep. Um, Kenny lets her in, and they watch Randy from the news van. Um, and like Kenny jumps out of the news van to warn Randy because he just like as he realizes and remembers that there's a 30 second delay on the camera, um, he sees that the front door of the house is wide open and then his throat is slit by Ghostface. And this is kill number five. So um, for me, this confirms that the Ghostface in the house is Stu because I feel that Billy would have killed Randy in a heartbeat. But Stu, I think, is kind of indifferent to the idea of killing randy which is why he's not killed at that time in the film while billy follows sydney to the van mm -hmm. and kills kenny in a simple and effective way so that kind of plays back into my theory about like who's killing who and we could go on about that i yeah. would love to actually hear theories from everybody listening so please like tweet at us or like email us um i really want to get your thoughts on who killed who <laughs> in the films uh Stuart yeah. billy because uh i want to hear what everybody's theories are but Sydney slams the van door shut, um, but she's stabbed in the shoulder at this time. So she crawls out the back of the van and makes a run for it. And there's just like, I love this scene because the way she's like going through what seems to be um, a maze of little ways to get out of the van really quickly. Um, and I'm just mm -hmm. like, I don't know how you fit through there. And I get why Ghostface doesn't fit through there, but 
good job. So um, at this point, Dewey and Gail return to the house and Dewey searches the house to the sound of Jamie Lee Curtis screaming in the background as Halloween continues to play on the television. At this point, it's really um, the film Halloween that kind of lets us know how much time has passed which we're kind of keeping time. Yeah. Yeah, it gives you a good timeline because it's playing all the way till the end, mm-hmm. like, of the movie, really. So, Well, um, until Sydney uses the television as a weapon. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. yes. <laughs> but, like, the clothes hanger part, which we get, we'll get to. Yes, but, you know, yes. Like, yeah, it yeah. continues. So it kind of tells you, like, how long it's taking for all these things to play out. Oh, gosh. At this point, Dewey and Gail, like I said, return to the house. Um, Gail returns to the news van, finding Kenny's blood all over the ground, and she jumps into the van for safety, which I'm like, what if there's a killer in there? (laughs) But um, she dials the police, or at least she starts to, as Randy walks up to the van. She gets frightened by Randy um, and hits him and starts the van only to find blood, like, all over the windshield. So Kenny's body falls onto the the windshield as she starts to drive the van away um and then gail runs off the road to avoid hitting sydney on her way back to the house and so for this this is like another time when i think we're meant to think that randy's the killer because for whatever reason a drunken randy has come outside but i think he actually came outside to investigate the scream when sydney screamed before which is also why the killer came outside right so yeah um, that's how randy yeah. ends up outside of the house according to me <laughs> so um but sydney runs back to the house and then she like stumbles upon dewey basically who's coming out of the house to find that he has a knife in his back and then Ghostface emerges from the house and chases sydney to the police car or dewey's car so she locks um herself in the car and then Ghostface dangles the keys in front of sydney before he disappears such a gameplay move so i actually think that this is stew um but ghostface yeah ghostface pops the trunk and then gets into the car and chases sydney out of the car um and yeah like to me Stu is the one that likes to play the games this is what makes it fun for him and i totally agree with you that like Stu is the psychopath in the situation so um sydney runs to the house and grabs dewey's gun as randy comes up behind her and then Stu follows behind him so like this is the first time that we've seen Stu since he said he'd be right back right (laughs) um yeah so (laughs) it's like kind of crazy but um uh, both of them accuse each other of the murders as sydney keeps them both at bay with the gun and then in a power move she locks Stu and randy outside of the house together before billy miraculously alive stumbles down the stairs covered in blood (laughs) and then can we talk about the yeah, theatrics like Like how far billy did go to go down the stairs down the stairs Oh, God, I'm still alive, Sydney. Like, ugh. um, And then <laughs> Sydney gives Billy the gun, and Billy lets Randy um, back into the house. And this is where it all goes down. This is where the big reveal happens. Um, but hold on. But hold on. Can we just talk about how Sydney, like, didn't notice, like, any, like, stab, not stab well, wounds, but, like, stabs through the shirt? There are stabs like, through, the shirt is torn. The shirt is torn. And there's blood all over it. But if you look at the rest of the blood, I mean, obviously it's, I don't know if it's <clears throat> all corn syrup throughout the, the film, but um, when you look at Billy, the way that it's dried and the coloration of the blood is super different from blood in the rest of the film. And I noticed mm, that just like okay. as a viewer. 
Yeah, I just found, like, you know, when you're looking at the shirt, it doesn't look like there's, like, any holes, like, where the knife would have went through type thing. I just thought that to be very weird anyway. Yeah, that's not something I noticed, but, like, I'll have to go back and watch it again, right? Because <laughs> it's, like, one of those things where you just <laughs> notice things every time you watch the film. So um, Randy, in a total panic, tells them that Stu has flipped out and gone mad, to which Billy, looking menacing as ever, replies, we all go a little mad sometimes, <laughs> before shooting Randy in the shoulder. Sid rushes to check on Randy as Billy exclaims that he's quoting Anthony Perkins from Psycho, uh, who played the title character of Norman Bates, a character that was actually inspired by serial killer Ed Gein, the Plainsfield ghoul. So, more serial killer references, more movie references... Uh, we love it. We love it. We love it. Um, and then Billy toys with Sydney before revealing that he and Sue are the ghost face killer, uh, referencing that they used coin corn syrup uh, to basically the same stuff that they use for pig's blood and carry to fake uh, his earlier attack when he gets stabbed by ghost face. Um, <clears throat> he thinks he's so fucking clever when he says that, too. <laughs> like I know it's the same stuff they use in carry. Man. <laughs> he's just like, OK, Um a for effort, dude. I guess. Um, and then they force Sydney into the kitchen as they explain their master uh, real life horror movie plan. And Billy says that it's a lot scarier when there's no motive, Sid. So, of course, he actually does have a motive. They're making their own horror movies because they're obsessed with horror films. And Billy actually blames Maureen Prescott for the dissolution of his parents' marriage. And um, they let Sydney know that they actually both killed her a year ago today because it's now the anniversary of her murder. And Billy even says that maternal abandonment causes serious deviant behavior. Um, so, uh, like, at this point, Stu and Billy have a really interesting, like, codependent relationship, but we only really see it in this scene where the, with the their mannerisms and the way they're, like, very close to each other and the way Stu is sort of, mm -hmm. Stu is almost, like, clinging to Billy as this, like, dominant figure and the way that he's sort of leaning on him or putting his head almost on Billy's shoulder in this moment is very, yeah. um... I'm not saying that it's sexual, but I'm not not saying that it's sexual. It's borderline. <laughs> yeah, it's borderline sexual. There's, there's an intimacy <laughs> there, right? Like, there's a very distinct intimacy between the two characters. And I do kind of think that Stu, in his own deranged way, really looks up to Billy almost either as, like, a, an older brother figure or maybe in a romantic way. I assume, I mean, again, assumption that if you were to kill people together, that there has to be some bond of sorts. Um, and maybe that's what they were trying to imply. But it definitely it definitely has a, a remnants of sexuality there for sure. But who knows what they were trying to get at at that point? Yeah, I don't know for certain. This is just our, our theories for sure. But um, ready to play a game with Sydney, they explain the rules before Stu, Stu actually pulls Neil Prescott out of the closet, informing us that they had planned to frame Sydney's father for the murders all along. And then to ensure the ending is believable, Stu and Billy start stabbing each other um, to be the only remaining survivors of Neil's killing spree. You see, Sid, everybody dies but us. Everybody dies but us. We're going to carry on and plan the sequel. Because let's face it, baby, these days, you got to have a sequel. He's sick for fuck's sake. He's seen one too many movies. Nah, Sid, don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. 
Movies make psychos more creative. Stop it, Billy, would you, all right? I can't take any more. I'm feeling woozy here. Quit. That fucking scene is so fucked up. Like, I mean, like, it's brilliant, but so fucked up. Like, I remember, like, I still remember my first reaction. And you have to remember, when I first watched this movie, I was like, it was like a year after it came out, because it was on cassette. It wasn't in the theaters or anything. So, you know, yeah, like, I, I was like nine years old, and I just was like, I was like, oh my god, what is happening? Like, that initial reaction. Oh, I still like, I could still vision it. It's such a bloody scene, and I actually had watched and read that Kevin Williamson had gone to Craven and been like, hey, this is too bloody. It's too much. It's disturbing. I can barely even watch it. And then Wes had said, he, he actually made this great comment. He's like, well, the writer described this as being, you know, XYZ scene with them stabbing each other and all this stuff. So do you think the writer would think that it's bloody or no? And like, obviously, Williamson was the writer. So, so. <laughs> it was just like, oh, that's so great. Like, yeah. Um, this oh is Kevin God. being like, I don't know, Wes. And then, I mean, it all worked out, right? So, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Billy instructs Stu to grab the gun, only to find that the gun is missing. And Gail Weathers, in all her glory, confronts Stu and Billy to save the day. But Billy knocks Gail out and takes the gun back because, of course, the safety was on. Uh, but Stu informs Billy that Neil and Sydney have vanished while they were distracted by Gail. So it's perfect. Um, Sydney plays a game with Billy and Stu using their own tricks against them. And then Billy loses his shit while Stu talks to Sydney on the phone because she's called them and is using the voice changer. Um, before Sydney emerges from the closet as Ghostface and stabs Billy with an umbrella, um, Stu actually attacks Sydney at this point and then she kills him with the television set um, after the film. Like Halloween has ended at this point and it's just like a fuzzy screen. But um, we get our sixth death at this point. And I love these lines of Stu's where he says that peer pressure was his motive and his mom and dad are going to be so mad at him <laughs> because it really speaks to his emotional maturity level. I know. Oh, my God. Like, again, his facial expressions, like the acting was brilliant. Um, at this point, Randy startles Sydney before she confronts Billy again in the hallway, and then Gail shoots him before he can stab Sid, but the killer always comes back for one last scare. Randy lets them know that you have to make sure that the killer's dead, because this is where the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for that one last scare. And so Sydney shoots Billy in the head as he arises to fulfill this trope, and we get our seventh and final kill of the film. <laughs> um, but Neil then, like, falls out of the closet for one last jump scare, which it's like, okay, we'll do it again. Um, and morning arrives as we see the police outside the house, and then we actually see that Dewey is alive. He's being put into the back of an ambulance, and Gail reports the story of what's occurred that night uh, from outside the house as the camera pans out and we fade to the credits. And I actually felt like the, that part of the ending of the film was a little anticlimactic, but um, like, it's like, okay, that that's it. The story's done. We fade to black, the mm -hmm. credits roll. And uh, we actually got a kill count for this film of seven kills, but I actually like to think that it's a solid eight kills. If you include Maureen Prescott, who was killed off screen a year before. Yep. Seeing that's from the same killers, yeah. Yeah. I, I would count that as a solid eight for sure. 
yeah, I don't think I'd usually count it, but they reference it so many times. I'm like, yeah, we can count it. But we wanted to talk a little <laughs> bit about why we think that Scream is so important. And I did, um, you know, pull a little bit of research to talk about this. And essentially, like, Scream really breathed new life into the slasher films that we love to, in the 80s. And it really brought a new vitality and a bit of humor to the horror subgenre of slasher films. And it calls attention to all the cliches and tropes of slashers extremely well. And then it like completely turns them on their head, right? So um, I felt that Scream, it really created this renewed interest in slasher films. And I'm convinced that it's the reason that we saw a revival of slasher films in the late 90s and early 2000s, along with a resurgence of reboots of horror franchises and different classics like Friday the 13th oh. and A Nightmare on Elm Street, however unsuccessful they were. And unfortunately, Michael Bay trying to remake a lot of horror films. Um, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um, just stop, well, <laughs> Michael Bay. Just stop, please. Well, if you notice, like, Randy's character alone ended up becoming a new trope in the 90s as well. Um, I had seen clips where they're showing, like, a character in Urban Legend, and uh, there was another movie, too, um, that they have this whole, like, this whole randy-type character who who's, like, a little bit nerdy and always references to, like, movies or something in pop culture in that regard. Um, so definitely Scream inspired so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically kind of jumping back into it, like William's portrayal or excuse me, Williamson's portrayal of the American teenager really holds up, um, kind of capturing the melodrama of being a teen and like the immaturity, especially with like Stu's character, um, the insensitivity with Billy's character and the inability to understand actions and consequences, I feel like, with the way that Stu's like, you know, my parents are going to be so mad. Are you really going to call the police? Like, they never expect to get caught, right? Yeah, no. Um, and then it's also kind of a social criticism of the media at the time, um, given that we didn't have smartphones or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. <laughs> it didn't go as deep as... Um, some films do today, but I think that Scream came out at a time in the 90s when the news media was responsible for a lot of, um, you know, guilty until proven innocent situations as depicted in, mm -hmm. you know, the film via like the character of Cotton Weary, who is falsely accused of murder. Um, and it's just really interesting to me. So Wes Craven's direction of the film was really superb. And he really knows how to capture the everyday horrors of real life. And that's why I think scream was such a visceral experience um he also really set the tone for the entire film in that first 13 minute sequence um it was just really well done and like i've said before that 13 minute sequence could have been a short film all by itself so um yeah i mean reva it's your favorite movie i know it's it's my favorite movie. We all know it's basically the first horror movie that I ever watched. And, you know, I had no problem. I'm not a person who likes to rewatch movies. I don't know if I've told you that before, but I like to watch a movie maybe once or maybe twice, I should say. So for me to watch this movie over and over again and had no problem watching it three times just for this, um, I just, I love the acting in it i love the way that they twist the tropes around which i've talked about several times and 
I'm just like, I'm a big fan of any kind of social criticism or anything that kind of relates to, relates to pop culture, but like relates to like, it could be you type deal. Like, I'm just a huge, like huge fan of that. And overall, like, like you mentioned before, it just, it brought back the slasher. And at the time, like when I first watched it, obviously I didn't know that, but my favorite genre of horror movies is slashers. It was brilliant overall. <laughs> yeah, we have to agree. And um, this is our very first horror film review. So we got to do our bloody knives. Um, Ooh, what we yes. like to do here are bloody <laughs> knives. And that's how we rate a horror film. So you can get five out of five bloody knives. Um, I was actually going to go five for five, but I'm actually going to go for four out of five bloody knives on this one. And part of that is really because of the post editing, um, like the scene that doesn't really make sense with the principal, um, even though we got like that iconic mm -hmm. shot out of it. And um, just some of the editing and things that happen and some of the um, dialogue, I don't like a lot of most of the dialogue I love, but there's some things that I don't love or I think are just like too cheese whiz. So um, I'm going to give it a four out of five. For me, you know that I'm going to give this a five out of five. Well, I have to say, like, this has been really fun. We can't wait to do more film reviews. Thanks for slaying away with us. Until next time, stay spooky. Hey Slayers, if you liked that episode, please go and give us a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. And be sure to go check out slayawaywithus.com for more reviews and essays on our favorite genre, horror.